Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, what additional future steps should the United States and Europe take, if any, to counter Russian ambitions. And joining me now is the author of one of the essays in this issue, Paul Gregory, research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Paul, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Okay, let's start here. You suggest in your piece at Strategica that what's at stake for Vladimir Putin vis-a-vis Ukraine is really nothing less than his grip on power in Russia. Explain that. I think that uh, Putin has... uh, basically promised the Russian people two things. One is rising living standards. The second is a return to uh, power status uh, in the world arena. Uh, If he fails to deliver either of the two, uh, he has failed to deliver fundamental promises to the Russian people. Uh, Therefore, success in Ukraine... Uh, success in threatening the Baltic states, the weakening of NATO, if he does not deliver on these, if he were seen to be suffering a defeat, uh, this could um, spell the end of his regime. If not, that's the way he views it, I believe. And you write that, I'm quoting you here, the only possible resolutions are either Ukrainian capitulation, which would be welcomed in many European capitals, or raising the cost to Putin to such a level that he must seek a face-saving way out. Okay, let's talk about some of the ways you think we can reach that, that latter goal. Uh, sanctions, those are one of, the, one of the tools you'd use? Of course. Uh, let me say that um, one reason for that paragraph is that Uh, This is the slogan one hears in Europe and in many quarters in the United States. We we must find a peaceful solution. We must find a compromise. What that paragraph means is that there is no easy, peaceful solution. There is no easy compromise. But uh, with respect to sanctions, the sanctions uh, indeed have... um, serve to cripple the economy. Uh, I think the West was fortunate that the sanctions combined with uh, falling oil prices. But the minute the sanctions came out, I, as an economist, did an economic analysis to measure what would be the effect of, of really removing Russia from world capital markets, uh, particularly the highly leveraged Russian national champion companies, as they're called. And even assuming uh, high oil prices, I uh, calculated that the sanctions alone would, would lead to a fairly severe recession in Russia. So those who say it's only falling oil prices are wrong. On this front with the sanctions, are you willing to go as far as Angelo Cotavella? When we had him on, he said that he would also pursue uh, secondary sanctions. So not only do you sanction the Russians, you sanction third parties who are dealing with them. Would you be in favor of that? Uh, 
I've not I've not thought that through. I think there are still sanctions to be levied against um, individuals and companies in Russia before turning to the third parties. So I would, uh, if it were up to me, I would have a more complete list of companies and individuals to be sanctioned. And I would think, as the British have suggested, about the so-called nuclear sanction of kicking Russia out of the SWIFT financial transfer system. What about the criticism you hear sometimes that, especially in a kleptocracy like Russia, the sanctions might squeeze everyday people, but they're not going to have a whole lot of effect on those in power? This is um, something to think about. Um, there, There is a group that says that our sanctions should be aimed at the oligarchs and not at the people. Uh, I think they should be aimed both at the oligarchs and, unfortunately, at the people who, I believe, bear no blame for all this. The reason they have to hurt the Russian economy, employment, prices, inflation, etc., is that this calls into question Putin's first fundamental promise to the Russian people, which was economic growth, prosperity, rising living standards. So if he's in the position where he can't um, uh, raise uh, pensions uh, in step with inflation, you know, if he has to lay off government workers, which are his power base, uh, this weakens him. Uh, so I would like to see sanctions that that strike the oligarchs and, unfortunately, uh, the Russian people. Now, you also propose in your piece sending lethal weapons, something the U.S. has thus far been unwilling to do. Let me pose to you the same question that we put to uh, Victor Davis Hanson in his episode in this series. The the theory there isn't that Ukraine is going to defeat the Russian forces on the battlefield. It's that it's going to escalate the costs efficiently so that Russia decides maybe it isn't worth the candle. Kind of a variation on what we were just talking about. Are the are the democratic feedback loops in Russia strong enough to get to that outcome? That is to say, is the Putin regime sensitive enough to public opinion that that could actually move the needle? I think they are. Uh let me first say that um, it is foolish, and one hears this argument too frequently, particularly out of Europe and sometimes out of Washington, that by giving lethal weapons, we will somehow encourage the Ukrainians to think that they can beat the superior Russian army. That is not what the lethal weapons are about, and I believe uh, Victor Davis Hansen and others uh, have the same same view. Uh, the provision of lethal weapons uh, would indeed raise the cost to Russia. Uh, it would raise it in several ways. Uh, the most important being that uh, Putin and the Russian leadership are very sensitive to casualties. They've made every effort to conceal casualties. The Russian people are being told no regular Russian troops are being killed. 
those being killed are patriotic Ukrainians on the other side of the border and patriotic Russian volunteers who felt compelled to go and help their Slavic brethren. Uh, it's very hard to get a count of the number of casualties and then break it down by mercenaries versus regular troops. But the calculations I've seen suggest uh, thousands of Russian deaths in, Ukra in Ukraine. And those deaths, particularly in Russian families that have one child, reverberate throughout the community and throughout the, the country. If Putin were not so worried about this, he would not go to such great lengths to conceal these, these casualties. Uh, also, the Russian army, according to analysis I've heard, is stretched. You know, it, it, uh, they've had to take troops out of the north. They've had to take troops out of Chechnya, which could boil over at any point. And so uh, the Russian army is, is really stretched, although compared to the Ukrainian army, it looks, looks quite strong. So the, the purpose of the lethal weapons is to impose these costs. Uh, I can't understand those who say, well, we should give them basically nothing because, well, then you might as well disarm them and, and um, be done with it. So uh, I find a lot of fuzzy thinking on this question. You also talk in your piece about the importance of the West giving financial support to Ukraine. How do you react to the criticism you tend to get, especially from the right, really, that when it comes to projects like that, that you want these countries to be able to stand on their own two feet and when we get involved in cutting checks, all you're going to end up doing is – sort of infantilizing them and, and conditioning them to dependency. How do you react to that? Clearly, um, Ukraine cannot survive without financial assistance, and it needs a lot, uh, perhaps 40 to 50 billion. Um, I would remind everyone that this is a country that is fighting a hot war that's lost 20% of its territory and GDP and uh, has a refugee crisis, perhaps the biggest Europe has seen since World War II. So even if the Ukrainian government were perfectly reformed, perfectly honest, um, effective, etc., Ukraine would still need a mini Marshall Plan just to get by. Uh, fortunately, uh, there is perhaps for the first time, a quasi-decent government uh, in office in Ukraine. The International Monetary Fund, World Bank, uh, etc., have enormous leverage over Ukraine to make sure the money is spent wisely. Uh, it would be totally unrealistic to tell Ukraine, which is suffering these catastrophes, Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's that's um, that's um, doesn't make any sense to me. So remember, uh, Russian Russia can prevail in two ways. It can prevail on the battlefield. It can prevail by the collapse of Ukraine. So um, without the financing, uh, you would get the latter result. 
Another goal that you cite is fighting back in the propaganda war. Vladimir Putin has been aggressively disseminating this narrative that the U.S. is Russia's enemy, that we're trying to undermine them, that we're even planning a sneak attack on them. Uh, the question for you there, to what extent do you think that kind of messaging is effective because the West isn't seriously hitting back? And to what extent is it effective – because this is something that the the Russian people from the get-go may be inclined to believe. Is there a cultural factor there? I'm always suspicious of cultural factors and historical factors. Uh, they could play a role. We have to really divide this into various theaters of combat. Uh, I think the Russian propaganda aimed at the American audience has not been effective. Uh, it's not effective because America isn't terribly interested in Russia or Ukraine, uh, but there has been an effort, you know, Russia today, etc. But I think they've pretty much given up on that. The real battlefield is in Europe, where you have natural uh, allies of Russia, business interests, uh, leftist parties um, in Germany, there's very strong support for Russia in the former eastern um, regions. So in Europe, the propaganda battle is being fought uh, very hard by Putin, and he has very effective representatives uh, within each country who are political figures in those countries. So the fighting back really needs to come out of Europe. And there has, has been talk of um, radio stations and TV stations and so forth. I don't think they've gotten very far. Where Putin has clearly won the propaganda battle is in Russia itself and, unfortunately, in East Ukraine because um, Russian technology is very good at um, shutting down Ukrainian broadcasts to Eastern Ukraine. So most people in Eastern Ukraine hear only Russian television. And, and, and if the war were to end favorably uh, tomorrow, there would still be an enormous amount of work to be done to repair that damage in East Ukraine. In Russia, um, you know, there is an intelligentsia that understands this is propaganda nonsense, but most Russians get their information from the major broad broadcast networks, and all they hear is this nonstop propaganda, which is done very effectively and um, has, in my view, convinced a good percentage of the electorate, a good percentage of Putin's supporters that it's true. So final question. I'll close you out the same way I did Victor and Angelo with the same prompt. Assuming no real change in the West's posture and America's posture specifically, that we sort of keep on with these half-hearted efforts with the, the MREs and the like, but no serious aid to Ukraine, certainly no lethal aid. What does the situation look like for Russia and for its neighbors a little less than two years from now when Barack Obama leaves office? Very difficult question to answer. Uh, clearly, um, you would have the so-called frozen conflict um, in what Putin likes to call New Russia, which would be from the Donbass all the way up to uh, Moldova. Uh, so at a minimum, you would have 
frozen conflict and expansion of territory that Russia controls uh, may be uh, controlling even more major ports. Uh, under this scenario, Ukraine would have to sort of withdraw to a core area that it would have to defend. Uh, I don't think Putin has the resources or will to attack Kiev. So I think we'll just have a frozen conflict. Uh, Putin, if Putin achieves this frozen conflict at low cost, uh, I very much suspect he will go next uh, against um, Latvia, Lithuania, or Lithuania. And I think he can do so without triggering Article 6 of NATO. Uh, he will work very hard to uh, destroy NATO, uh, take advantage of internal conflicts within NATO. So two years from now, the worst case scenario, scenario would basically be a Europe without NATO, frozen conflicts, Baltics under attack, sort of a fortress Ukraine, and I don't uh, consider that to be a very um, bright prospect. All right. Our guest has been Paul Gregory, research fellow at the Hoover Institution. You can read his essay and those by other members of the group by visiting us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Paul, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org. <laughs>